last night when I was watching this, I was cursing your name. I was like, fucking hell, Eric, can we pick someone a bit more fun next time? <laughs> no. But the, the Panos Cosmatos one is called The Viewing. Paul Weller's in it. Uh, Peter Weller. Not Paul Weller, that would be sick. Yeah. <laughs> but Peter Weller's in it. Andre Benjamin? Is that his name? Mm-hmm. Andre 2000. N- no, not no. him. Uh, Eric Andre. <laughs> oh, Eric Andre. Wait, yeah. <laughs> isn't, isn't Andre... Isn't that his last name? Yeah, Andre 2000 is Andre, Andre Benjamin. Yes. Yeah, okay. That's right. <laughs> so, yeah, but it's not him. It's okay. Eric Andre. God, oh, I don't Eric know if I Andre. should cut this out of the podcast. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and welcome to another episode of Movies Last Night and Happy Halloween. Not that you'll hear this on Halloween, but we are recording on All Hallows Eve. Yeah, yeah. October 31st. (laughs) I'm just going to get this out of the way with right now. Let's talk about Highlander. Two or one? We're talking about Highlander 2 now and some emissions, which is going to become a recurring theme for us now, I feel, (laughs) as I work through my the entire extended Highlander canon. It's going to be called the Highlander the Redac. Yeah, we should change the podcast to The Quickening. That's a really cool name for a podcast, by the way. Last week, when I was talking about Highlander 2, I was talking about it in the abstract because I hadn't seen it in like 25, 30 years. And I made a a note where I said, oh yeah, I think the soundtrack's better in 2 because Queen did the soundtrack in 2. I was actually incorrect. There are Queen songs in part two, but I think they're reused from the first movie. Oh, yeah. And the soundtrack is actually the original score is recorded by Stuart Copeland, who is the drummer for the police. Yeah, yeah. We do have to talk about Highlander 2 in regards to the praise that we heaped on Highlander 1. Highlander 2 is perhaps the goofiest movie I've ever seen in my entire life. (laughs) It is batshit crazy. Yeah. Right. Okay, here we go. This is wild. So they filmed the movie in Argentina. Okay, now Argentina went through a financial collapse during the filming of the movie from a thing called hyperinflation, which I'm not sure exactly how that works, but it feels like what's happening right here in America right now. (laughs) The country went through economic collapse. And what happened was the director from the first movie was on board. He did the second movie. But what happened was during this collapse, the film financiers or the production company took control of the film away from the director and fucked around with his original vision. Here's the plot for Highlander 2, and I'm not making this up. (laughs) Right. I can't wait at all. So they took the notion of the quickening Highlander and what they decided to do is they took Hannah McLeod and Ramirez and then turned them into space aliens. So basically, (laughs) (laughs) so their origin story is that way before the events of the first movie, they're actually on this planet called Zeist which is undergoing like some kind of a um, revolutionary war against this evil leader who's played by Michael Ironside uh-huh. called Catan, right? So he's like the new Kurgan. And they are leading a revolutionary army against Catan. And when they try to overthrow him, they are foiled. And then a council of space aliens to punish them sends them to Earth with the caveat that they're going to be immortal. And when they go to Earth as a prison, as punishment, they are made immortal with other people from Zeist and then they have to fight each other ultimately to regain mortality with the quickening in the tournament, right? Which is 
a completely insane punishment. Like, I don't understand. Like, it's insane. Ironside is furious about this, okay? So anyway, the events of the first film unfold. Ramirez dies, okay? Mm-hmm. They retcon it. Retcon it, yes. They yeah. retcon it by Ramirez saying to McLeod on Planet Zeist, if you ever need me, just call me and I'll be there. Right? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like they're dating. Okay. Oh my God. It's amazing. So what happens is McLeod's in the future. The movie's actually set in 2024, not far off from right now. So we're going to have Highlander two days soon. Yeah, it's coming. Election cycle. Highlander <laughs> two election cycle. <laughs> oh God, it is, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, that's terrible. That's the real quickening <laughs> in 2024. This is how it goes down. He wins. McLeod wins. Okay. The first round of the quickening and it becomes mortal. And then what happens is as he ages on, he gets to 1999 and this climate crisis on the earth just like there is right now oh my god all these parallels are <laughs> it's <right> happening <laughs> <laughs> they suffer from like excess heat and humidity and the earth is starting to like really really die so mcleod who's now like some kind of mad genius inventor somehow comes up with a system to block out the sun and put a shield around the sun which blocks out the sky okay um but what happens is <laughs> It starts to backfire and humanity starts to die because they're not getting any daylight, not getting any sunlight. Everyone's getting negged out. Basically, the future starts looking like a really, admittedly, very cool cyberpunk dystopia. Yeah. Right. So when we meet McLeod at the beginning of the second movie, he's ancient, ancient. He looks like he just wants to die and he's in like really bad aged up makeup. It's really funny. Anyway, Katana, uh, Michael Ironside's character on Zeist is furious still about this. So he starts sending his minions to Earth to attack McLeod. That's where the hoverboard comes in. It's not a hoverboard. They have like hover shoes where they kind of fly around. <laughs> okay. He comes out of the opera one night, McLeod, and these two like goblins, space goblins, start attacking him on the street. Admittedly, this is pretty cool. He has a really cool fight against these two guys, and then he kills one of them, and then he puts the guy's boots on and starts flying around. So the two of them are having like a hover shoe flight, uh, fight flying through the streets, hitting each other with swords. It's really funny. And it's all practical effects and <laughs> oh, it looks no. totally goofy. So basically he kills those guys and then the quickening happens again. And then so all of a sudden he goes back to being a young man and he becomes immortal again. He bumps into, I think it's Juan Wally Kilmer, who I think at that time was just called Juan Wally before she met and married Kilmer, who was just a fabulous actress. I love her. She's from the first Candyman. People recognize her. Beautiful, beautiful woman. Really, really great actress. And she is part of this rebel faction of people on Earth who's trying to disable the shield and bring the shield down. He teams up with her. Ramirez materializes out of thin air <laughs> because he calls for him. Hey, I need you, Ramirez. I need you. He materializes back in Scotland in the future in 2024 during a stage rendition of Hamlet. Sean Connery is camping it up like you've never seen. It is ridiculous. <laughs> and then he goes to a tailor's and gets his super fine suit made. And then he takes an airplane for the first time because he doesn't know what an airplane is across to where McLeod is. Why would he get on it? He has no idea what the thing is. Why on earth would he get on it? And it's really funny because he looks really scared when he's on the plane. He's looking out the window and there's a shot of him from the exterior of the airplane when it's in the sky. And he's like, oh, what's this? It is so fucking bad. It is out of control. And it's also hilarious. It's like unintentionally hilarious, I think. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, Ramirez dies again. Of course. Okay? Yeah. He sacrifices himself to save McLeod. Then McLeod defeats Ironside 
brings down the shield. Mm-hmm. Okay. Flash forward to McLeod, who goes back to Zeist on the alien planet. Now, I watched it. I didn't finish it, admittedly. <laughs> I got about three quarters of the way through and I was like, I can't, I can't do this. <laughs> but interestingly enough, Highlander 3. There's a third one? Oh, dude. Yeah. Of mainline movies, I think there's five. Oh, my. Lambert is only in the first three, I believe. And I think part three, the Kurgan, is Mario Van Peebles. And the third one's actually pretty fire. So at least I remember it being <laughs> pretty fire. <laughs> that one, it retcons it again and it says Highlander 2 never happens. Oh, okay. And they go back to the original canon for Highlander 3. So it's a direct sequel to Highlander 1. He's the, he's the Kurgan. The Kurgan died in the first. Or is he just from that tribe or something like that? Nah, we're going to have to find out next week's episode because oh. I'm going to have to watch it. <laughs> Cliff, cliffhanger. I mean, Highlander <laughs> 2 sounds like a, a cross between Scientology and Star Wars. It feels like a fever dream when you watch it. It's it's wild. It's beautifully shot, though. Again, I've got to hand it to him. This guy who made it, I think his name is Russell Malachi. I think that's the how you pronounce his name. It's a beautifully fucking shot movie. Again, I would recommend our listeners, if you haven't already given up on this podcast by now, <laughs> since we've completely derailed, I would watch it just to see it. You don't have to watch the whole thing. You get enough of it. If you watch the first 30 minutes, you're like, okay, I'm good. Especially if you can watch it through to the, the, hoverboard, the hover boot f- fight. That's worth it. I mean, I, I vaguely remember something about floating in the sky on, on a hoverboard or something like that. That's all I remember about it. That is it. I don't remember anything that you just told me at all. I've seen it once, probably, I don't know, 30 years ago or something other than that. Yeah, I saw it when I was a kid and I didn't remember any of it. There's a really bad scene early on before he gets into the fight where he goes into the bar and he, everyone's, oh, Mr. McLeod, because he's famous. Everybody knows who he is because he saved, quote unquote, saved the earth by building the shield. And he goes into a bar and he um, goes to the jukebox at the, at the bar and he puts money in the jukebox and it starts playing the Queen song from the first movie. It is so, it is out of control. It's so bad. Really bad. <laughs> Sean Connery looks great in it though. Even though he's an old man, you could still tell he's a handsome bastard. Yeah. Yeah. He's such, he's got such presence. I don't know what time period they made this movie, but I'm guessing it might have been around the same time he made The Untouchables with De Palma. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I'd watch Sean Connery in anything. So great. He's done though. He's retired, I think, a while ago. He's a little bit like um, Jack Nicholson. Is Sean Connery dead or he's still alive? He's still alive, isn't he? No, Sean Connery passed. Did he? I think he just passed recently. I don't know. Google that now. But he reminds me a bit of, because Nicholson's still alive, but Mm -hmm. he's like that Nicholson where it just feels like he'll be around forever. He will in our heart. Yeah, Sean Connery's dead. (laughs) He was a Scottish actor. I don't even remember when this happened. He died during the pandemic. That's why he died October 31st. Oh, ooh. What? Today? He died on this day two years ago. Oh my God. <laughs> oh, what? Is that <laughs> I shouldn't be laughing, but what are the odds? <laughs> oh, wow, dude. He's uh, RIP. It, it's okay. I mean, he has space clones, apparently. If you call on him, he will come to you on All Hallows Eve. Don't do it in a mirror because he will show up behind you and murder you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to call on him during this episode when we're, when we're really struggling later on mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and we're at our darkest hour i'll call on sean connery and he'll finish the podcast with us <laughs> he had dementia oh that's sad <laughs> it's already gone dude it's already completely gone <laughs> terrible terrible he had dementia and it took its toll on him he got his final wish to slip away without any fuss 
He was not able to express himself in the period lead, in the period leading up to his death. That's sad. And it was also sad to end your life in the height of the pandemic, too. He was 90 years old when he died. Yeah, Lord. R.I.P. legend. He'll not be forgotten. Have you seen that clip of Sean Connery where he's on a talk show? It's I think it's an American talk show. I'm not sure what it is. And he's uh, he's talking about how his marriage was successful or something. I don't want to quote it out of uh, context, but it was something about physical discipline. So he would oh, only, yeah. he'd only hit, hit, hit his wife or whatever it was with an open hand. Yeah. That gets the job done. <laughs> what a piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that was in like the 80s or something. I I don't know. I mean, yeah, he got he got a bit of pushback for that one. Yeah. Garbage human legend. <laughs> Pre-cancellation. He survived cancellation. We couldn't cancel him for that. And he openly admitted to domestic violence with an open hand. <laughs> and he seems proud about it, too. I've seen the clip a few times because it's like semi-viral. Yeah. He was just like smiling and laughing. He did no remorse, went on, made a bunch more movies afterwards. Jesus. Okay. <laughs> Maybe his cancel culture is a good thing. <laughs> Weeding them out. Bloody hell. Okay. So that's that sidetrack taken care of. There's there's your Halloween story for you. What a horror. Yeah. Talk about true terror. <laughs> oh, okay. Weird. That's weird that it was today too of all days. That's so weird. Okay. I should put a lottery ticket on today because stars are aligning. <laughs> Maybe you should edit out us laughing about domestic abuse. Good Lord. I'm going to edit me out and I'm just going to have just you laughing leave away. leave me in there. Yeah. Like a super cut of all your laughs and it's going to be really awkward. <laughs> we'll get canceled. Oh yeah. Finally, I can get some rest. You can only get canceled if people listen to you. <laughs> if nobody knows you exist, you can't get canceled. Oh, That's we know there. We know there's sixty of you out there, so you can't. Yeah. You can't hide. <laughs> on a good week, there's sixty of you out there. I don't know where all sixty of you go on a bad week, but yeah, <laughs> bastards. Um, what are we doing today, Eric? What movie we're talking about? Well, we're talking about uh, a new uh, Halloween classic. Because it is a horror show, and, oh dear and God. That, that is all quiet on the Western Front. Brand new streaming on Netflix. It po- it popped up like a uh, man. I don't know, like three or four weeks ago. I saw the trailers. Like, oh, I want to, I want to watch that when it comes out. It looks, it looks pretty good. Looks interesting. It's an interesting take from the. It's the German perspective, I guess, that hasn't been filmed before. And this is the third iteration of this story, I believe, from what from what I uh some videos I watched afterwards about it. There were a couple you I, I think you saw a couple different movies that we both wanted to see, but I am old and I am prone to exhaustion <laughs> by the end of the week. So it is sometimes difficult for me to make my way to the theater sometimes because I would just collapse right on the sidewalk because I'm so tired. I've seen it. It's pretty terrifying. <laughs> and by exhaustion, Eric also means dementia. He's kind of going the way of Sean Connery. Yeah. Yeah. Minus the violence. My, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I might get an open hand slap. Keep me in line. <laughs> um, but I mean, it, did you want to say anything about those? Did you see? What did you go? Did you go, go watch um, Triangle of Sadness? I actually watched five movies on Saturday. Oh, wow. I went to see Decision to Leave early on in the morning, first thing in the morning. Then I left Decision to Leave, which is about a two and a half hour movie. I watched that at our local art house movie theater, The Bell Court. Then I took off from there and I drove to Franklin, where we usually catch movies on our big AMC. Mm-hmm. And then I caught Triangle of Sadness, which is another like two hours, 40 minutes. Jeez, movie. it's like six hours, 
My God. No, totally. Not including the commute, because the commute's about 30, 40 minutes. Yeah. And what was funny, so I'm, I'm waiting to see decisions leave, and I'm at the bell court, and those seats, we've talked about this umpteen times on the show, but the seats are horrendous. Horrendous. So I'm sitting down, within two minutes, and I'm uncomfortable. Anyway, this guy comes in, sits on the row opposite to me. Young guy, I would say probably in his late 20s. Watches the movie. There wasn't that many people there. Watches the movie, and I get out, and I don't think about it. And then I drive to Franklin, I grab food, and then I meet up with Zach. And Zach and I go inside the AMC, and we go in to sit down on a triangle of sadness and find our seats. And that guy from Decision to Leave is sitting in the row in front of me. No way. <laughs> yeah, which is really weird. And I and I said to him when I went in, I was like, hey, mate, I didn't I just see you at the bell court? And he was like, oh, yeah. And I was like, oh, you're doing the same thing I am. And he was like, yep, double feature today, <laughs> which I thought was funny. <laughs> why, didn't you, why didn't he just go see Triangle of Sadness at the bell court? It's right there. I think it might have been to, to do with timing, oh. the, with, it, with the overlap. I think he probably just decided to pick an early one. Or he could have lived in Franklin, you know what I mean, and just made the trip. Mm -hmm. Because... Decision's not playing at any of the AMCs here. It's only playing at the Art House Theatre in Nashville itself. Yeah. Because I could have done that too. I could have just caught Triangle there. But I wanted to meet up with Zach and I'm not made of money and I use my AMC Stubbs Pass. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, I'll spend $15 in gas to save spending $15 on a ticket. It, it works out. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, that was funny to see somebody doing the same thing. We're definitely going to do an episode on Decision to Leave. Okay. I'm not going to give away anything about that movie because I'm literally going to drag Eric to see it. Old man, dementia, <laughs> exhaustion or not. We're going... You have to see that movie. Yeah, we'll have, we'll have pick to. we'll pick a day. Is it's like in in the theater for a week or so? I think we've got two weeks probably in a push. Okay. So we'll, we'll we'll get in to see it. Uh, Banshees of Inisherin is on on Saturday. Okay. Anyway, Triangle of Sadness. I watched with Zach and we had a good time. It's way too long. I'll say that it's really long. How long is? Hey, let me put it in quotes. The scene. Pretty long. Pretty yeah. long. Well, the buildup is pretty pretty long into it. And then when it actually goes on, it goes places. It goes a lot further than it goes in the trailer. <laughs> I, that's all. I, I mean, I know a little bit about it, but I know that there's like, there's a point in there where it just goes, if, if you're squeamish at all, it kind of, it goes a, a certain way. Yeah. No spoilers, yeah. but you, you'll know what we mean if you've seen the trailer, but yeah. There's an event that happens that includes some bodily functions, multiple bodily functions. <laughs> I'll just put it that way. On board a luxury yacht during a storm. And yeah, it goes, it goes there and it doesn't pull any punches. But then it kind of gets even crazier and something happens that they don't allude to in the trailer. And that's roughly the halfway point of the movie. Then the rest of the movie takes place on a desert island. It reminded me a lot of old, actually, because of the setting and the cast of characters. To be fair, the movie split into two parts, which was a little bit shocking to me because I didn't realize that was going to happen. It's very funny, very, very funny, very, very cutting and biting like as a satire. Well, it's basically all about wealth and privilege and stuff like that. Yeah. However, it does get a little old after a while because I feel, okay, you've made that point. I get it. It was funny, but you are keep hammering it home. Mm. It overstays its welcome, at least to me. I still highly recommend it. I don't think you need to see it in a theater. Okay. However, it's worth seeing in a theater for other people's reactions because I was watching other people. There was a lot of elderly couples. <laughs> and I'm actually amazed nobody walked out because it does go there. So I'm actually kind of shocked nobody walked out. Oh, okay. And you know, some people have that thing. I'm trying not to give spoilers, but I, this is kind of a spoiler. 
Do you remember the movie? Is it Stand By Me? It's Stand By Me. Oh, yeah. yeah where he's yeah. recounting it's a mm-hmm. scene in a movie theater where yeah, yeah, one yeah. person yeah. and everybody, it's infectious. Yeah. It's that kind of a thing. And some people are very squeamish to seeing that on screen. Yeah. Yeah. It's a phobia. Yeah. It's a phobia, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So I was I was kind of shocked nobody walked out, if I'm being honest. Zach was killing himself laughing. <laughs> Openly laughing out loud. It was really funny. <laughs> you can watch it on streaming, though. You don't need to. Yeah. Decision to leave, on the other hand, you have to see, you have to see it in the theater. Yeah. You just have to. Is it too long? I mean, in your opinion, no. No, it's long, but it's not too long. It gets frustrating at parts based around some of the decisions that some of the characters make in the narrative, but that, that's purposeful. And I think I had to wrestle with my dissatisfaction at some of the decisions that the characters make because I was playing out a version of the movie that I wanted a different... Well, I was have had this idealized version of the narrative because of the person that I am. So I was kind mm-hmm. of reflecting myself back on the narrative where I was kind of frustrated at certain characters' decisions because I didn't want them to make them. But it makes sense and it plays out in the long run that the characters have to do what they do. My dream version of the movie doesn't really exist, which is, I'm trying to say it in a way that doesn't really give anything away. I was frustrated with it. At the same time, it is, if you want to see, basically, I would definitely put Park Chan-wook in the probably the top five working directors right now in Mm. terms of talent and ability, filmmaking. The cast is incredible. Performances are incredible. The cinematography is incredible. It's majestic. It is so good. It is basically a movie made by somebody who knows exactly down to an absolute science what they are doing and has a very unique voice because I I think he's very different than a lot of other filmmakers. And if you've seen any any of his other movies, Old Boy or any of the Sympathy movies, the Vengeance movies, all the way up to The Handmaiden, which I think was his last theatrical movie before this one, Mm -hmm. all of his movies, he's got such a unique voice and it just shines through in everything that he does. He has such a really vicious sense of humor. It's really fucking good. Really, really fucking good. (laughs) Huge, huge recommend. And there's just no way in hell you're not watching it with me in the theater. (laughs) There's no way. I'm not allowing it to happen. (laughs) All right. We'll have to make time and uh, figure it out. And we'll do a full length episode on that. It it deserves it. So you, you will get a full length episode on Decision to Leave. Triangle of Sadness, we more than likely will do a full length episode on, but it's a big recommend. I highly recommend you see it if you can. I mean, it, it won uh, Cannes this year, didn't it? Yeah, it did. It won Cannes, which is crazy because I think it beat Decision. Oh, really? Yeah, well, Park Chan-wook got Best Director, but I think Triangle got the, the the award for Best Picture. I don't know how their voting process works. I mean, I have a, I have a general idea of how the Academy uh, process works as far as voting. People who work in whatever subject they tend they vote for whoever wins i believe that's how it works but as far as cans i don't know i don't know the process um how they vote and decide who wins well i might be wrong but i think can says this is just a total stab in the dark so we'll be in a mission section next week when i fuck this up <laughs> after the highlander yeah they pick a jury pass winners so yeah it's made up of past winners and then it'll be like actors Kate Blanchett or whoever, you know what I mean? Yeah. Actors, directors in the industry. But I think it's mainly people who make movies who, who are on the jury. I don't think it's not an audience based, like an aggregate mm-hmm. or anything like yeah. that. It's like a, it's a, a legit jury and the jury pick from the movies that are on which one they want to win. So you get that little, it's a feather. I think it's a feather, isn't it? So that little stamp is on the beginning of all of the winners have that little stamp for the movie shows. So Triangle had that little thing on. 
Joker when it won Cannes. That had the little thing on. From what I hear, though, a lot of people are under the consensus that decision to leave was robbed. It, it was, definitely, if that's the case, because Triangle shouldn't have won over it. I can understand why they did pick Triangle, because it's very topical, and it's very, very of the moment. Mm -hmm. Really, really of the moment. So it's saying a lot of stuff about the world right now. Triangle is beautifully shot, too, though. Don't get me wrong. Whilst it's a comedy, it's impeccably made. It's, it's a beautiful film. It's interesting. All quiet on the Western Front. <laughs> <laughs> All Quiet on the Western Front is originally a book from 1929. Yeah. Here's a little description of the book. It's a novel by Eric Maria Remark, a German veteran of World War I. The book describes the German soldier's experience and extreme physical and mental stress during the war, and the detachment from civilian life felt by many of these soldiers upon returning home from the front. It was adapted in 1930 into an Academy Award-winning film of the same name, directed by Lewis Milestone. It was again adapted in 1979 by Delbert Mann, this time as a television film starring Richard Thomas, Ernest Borgnine, I think that's how you pronounce his name. Yeah. Legend. Everybody knows who he is. And again, now in 2022 with the same name. So by the sound of things, I'm not going to do, dig too deep into Wikipedia, but by the sound of things, the book covers more than this particular version of the film does, because I guess the book covers life post-war when they return home. This movie only focuses, the 2022 interpretation only focuses on the actual conflict, leading right up to the end, the official end of the war. But it doesn't really cover any soldiers going back home. That's interesting. I might want to look into reading the book because I would be curious to see who returns home, you know? <laughs> That's what I'm interested in, because I don't know if the characters that we are introduced to in this adaptation are inspired by or actually the same characters from the book. Yeah. I guess uh, it is probably required reading in high school or maybe like an honors program. I was never exposed to it. I think if anything, I was probably exposed to Hemingway, The Sun Also Rises, or uh, the what? what's the bell toll? For whom the bell tolls? Is that right? I think so. I think so. No, isn't that a Metallica song? Oh, yeah. Yeah. AP English <laughs> Metallica. <laughs> James Hetfield, the noted uh, lyricist and uh, poet. Uh, yeah, for whom the bell tolls. All quiet on the Western Front. What are your thoughts? I mean, l let me ask you this. That it might be an interesting topic. So you, you've you seen, we've watched Tar, which isn't subtitled, but it is mainly shot Berlin. You've watched uh, Decision to Leave, subtitled, and A Triangle of Sadness, subtitled. Uh, I assume for at least half of it. Parts of it, yeah. Yeah, parts mm -hmm. of it. There's a lot of English speaking in that movie, though. And then this one is subtitled uh, in German. Did you watch, when you watch it, did you watch it subtitled or did you watch it dubbed? I I tend to watch uh, movies that are in its original language subtitled and, you know, read it the whole time and just have that experience with it. And I don't have a problem with that whatsoever. When I watched this, it was later at night. I was a tiny, I was a bit tired, so I didn't know if I wanted to, I didn't know if I could read for two and a half hours um, and stay with it the entire time. So I watched it English dub, which I think they did a really good job with. Um, some of those dubs are just so, it, it seems like almost out of sync and it 
takes away from the movie. Either the voice actors just don't match or there's something about it that is just a bit off. I think with this one, though, they did a really good job with the dub of those actors. And there there is also some subtitles in it. Uh, There's um, when they're talking with the uh, the French commanders, it's in French. I like when movies do that, but they kind of compound on the confusion of two different languages because they force one of the languages to be in its original native tongue to to add to that confusion where you can tell like they they don't understand each other you know what i mean i really like it when they do that yeah i mean so, so do you have a preference i guess is my question no that's a good question because i watched it and I, I wanted to bring up the subtitles for it actually when we were talking about it because it was a thing so i watched it on netflix and when i started watching it i watch i always i always watch in the original language i just always do but i noticed when i was watching it the subtitles were almost doing that like closed captioning thing where it was like giving me audio description oh yeah yeah, yeah. or description of what was happening, which I thought was weird. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go into the to the settings and I'm going to change it to see if I'm on the wrong setting. Interestingly, there's multiple dubs as far as I can tell on Netflix. Yeah. So there's English language, then there's British English too. So there's another dub, I believe, some multiple dubs, which I, I didn't try, but I'm kind of curious now. I might go back and play around with them a bit later on this afternoon just to see what they're like. But yeah, I prefer the original language with the subtitles. But even though I tried to adjust the subtitles, there was times during this movie where the subtitles went out of sync, which is the first time I've ever seen that. So there was parts of the movie where I'd have to pause it. I think the subs are out of sync, so I pause it or or go back to the menu and restart it from where point I was to try and reset it somehow. And I don't know how that works. I don't know how subtitling works on these technically. I don't understand. So I don't know if it's a buffering thing like it is with sound and video. I don't think it is because it should be like synced coded to the time frame of the movie. So I thought that was weird. And some of the descriptive stuff that they put in, I noticed this. So the scenes where I was listening with my headphones on like really loud so I could hear everything and be really immersed. Same. Yeah, same. Which is now my gold standard. Like I won't watch movies without my headphones now, full stop. But there's times where they they had the subtitles on for people speaking, but there were background characters and you can't hear what they're saying. Mm. They had subtitles for their conversations, which was really weird, Eric. Walking through like, I don't know, a town square and like a tank's rolling by and all these soldiers are piling in. And then it'll give you a subtitle of two characters who are standing having a cigarette in the foreground of their conversation about a girl or something like that. We have to go out to the to the front line tomorrow or whatever. But you can't hear it audibly with your headphones on. So it was really weird. So I was like, who's making the decisions to cut that in? Oh. And is that part of the descriptive element of it? Is it to put me in the scene? Because it's weird if I can read what people are saying, but I can't hear it. That was really weird. I don't know. I don't really know anything about how that works. But to answer your question, yeah, I prefer original language. I am interested in hearing the dub now, though, because I wonder if it's like a lot of those movies they're doing now where there's not an awful lot of dialogue in this movie. Like, really, there isn't. So I wonder if they did multiple takes for... No, they couldn't have done. That would be so much work. Sounds impressive, though. I'm interested to hear the dub if you said it's as good yeah, as... Yeah, I mean, I, I was... I, I tend to shy away from it, but I was kind of impressed with uh, how they did it. Yeah, there's not a ton of dialogue. There is some there. There is some like uh, bits of of group monologues that happen that give you like character backgrounds and, and give you a look into like their individual lives uh, that you get. But for the most part, it's just a lot of uh, screaming and yelling orders back and forth and, and characters running around in, in pure chaos. 
Where do you think it kind of stands uh, in, in the in the pantheon of war movies? I think I think it is a very kind of interesting perspective of a war that a lot of people don't have a, a real clue about what was going on. I was watching this and I was really impressed. I was impressed by like the scenes. I was impressed by the the like the war scenes and like the carnage. I mean, and by no means is this like a simple, you know, like a bloody, like a, like a like a little bloody horror, like not horror, but a war movie that you can kind of pass on the violence like you can like there's something violent that happens but that but it moves on there's a lot of like lingering things that are happening here there are people who are drowning in their own blood there are there are people's faces getting crushed in there's like people getting stabbed multiple times and the legs and limbs belong there's people getting run over by tanks it's just like it is unrelenting uh the the pure chaos that happens in this movie you think think the beginning of saving private ryan as they're charging the the when they're on the d-day when they're on the beaches it is that for two hours and, and it is it's true it's really non-stop where do you i don't i don't know where's it kind of where does it fit for you within that kind of the area of war movies yeah that's a good question it's tricky because i think i agree with you with it being set in world war one like you said which i think is a war that a lot of people don't it's not the glam it's not the glamorized war like say unfortunately world war ii is kind of glamorized through all the yeah it's portrayal in media mm-hmm. the vietnam war because it was so televised and so like recorded yeah a lot of people don't really talk about the first world war i didn't know what it was about like i have i had to go and like look at stuff and i I was like, why are they fighting? What's this war about? I, I have no idea. I had no idea. I just did the same thing. I admittedly, history is not really one of my strong suits in it. And like, I'm getting more into it the older I get, which I think is a natural thing to happen. The older you get, you start to become more aware of history once you've become part of history because you've been around so long. Yeah. <laughs> um, when I was a kid, yeah. though, I didn't give a shit. The Great War, it's called the Great War, started 20th of July, 1914 and ended 11th of November. So on the 11th day of the 11th month, on the 11th hour in 1918, it ended. Now it ended at that specific time, which the movie will go into because of a treaty signed between the Germans and the French. Here's a little descriptor of it. It was a global conflict that left unprecedented destruction and death. I think it was like 17 million people died during that. Yeah, that's what they say in the end. But I'm thinking it was way, probably way more, more than that because they they had no way of like people were blown to bits in this. So they're, they're just like they're erased from existence, you know? Oh, 100 percent. Its belligerents included much of Europe, the Russian Empire, the United States, and the Ottoman Empire. Fighting took place across Europe, the Middle East, Africa, and parts of Asia. New technology, including the recent invention of the airplane, trench warfare, chemical weapons. There's a lot of chemical weapon use in this, including things that were subsequently banned, I think, after the First World or maybe it's after the Second World War, like flamethrowers, which I think were banned under the like Geneva Convention as unfair or unsportsmanlike for war, whatever. <laughs> yeah, whatever that, yeah. <laughs> Chemical warfare, which is was also uh, outlawed, I believe. An estimated 9 million soldiers died just in combat with another 5 million civilian deaths as a result of military actions, hunger and disease, because a lot of it was to do with, I guess, on a war of that scale, the economic destruction that the countries faced by just funding a war like this left a lot of people totally fucked. Million more, millions more died in genocides within the Ottoman Empire 
and the 1918 influenza pandemic, which was made worse because of the movements of people all over Europe during the war. Why did it start though? This whole, Franz Ferdinand, wasn't it? It was the assassination of Franz Ferdinand. That's, yeah, I mean, that's what I kind of remember. It started with an assassination, but I think it, I don't know if it was as simplistic as that. I think there were a lot of things going on in the background um, that built up to it. From the videos that I watched, they were like, it wasn't just simply an assassination that happened and we went into a great world war. I think it had to do with a lot of, of Germany being surrounded, something like that, or contested borders or, or uh, areas wanting to be their own sovereign nations. I mean, you don't get a lot of that in this movie. You don't get a lot of like a uh, historical perspective of what's going on. You just get you get character. You get these young guys, some who weren't me- like, quote unquote, men when they went there, like they uh, at least this group that we follow initially of, of four young men um, were underage. They were like they went into it with forged documents and they were like 17. So I guess right out of high school or the equivalent of and because they were sold this idea or this romanticism of of war and what it was like to fight for you know the the motherland or the fatherland or whatever the case is like there there was this push for some sort of glory that you come to find out very quickly and and they don't they don't go through any type of like training montage or anything like that like when it starts it's like they sign these documents they get them indoctrinated in or like uh sworn in they get their uniforms and then they're on the front lines that's what it seems like like no training no nothing it just seems like they just got clothes and they got shipped out i don't i don't know because i guess like i said the the perspective is from the the german side and they were they were literally like running through their, their their population, like as as far as uh, the war goes, it, it was just like people were dying just in on mass, and they just didn't have soldiers available, so they were just getting whoever they could. It seemed like, and there's this great scene. There there are these great scenes in the beginning where you're following this one character, and you see what happens with their uniform. There's this whole process that takes place. Oh God, yeah, that, which which was just unreal. It was it was unreal kind of the the whole how the how the war machine worked back then and how they recycled everything for a war that lasted four years there was so much that went into it probably decades and decades or even over century over a century beforehand i think it's the culmination of years and years and years of build-up which was triggered as a flashpoint by the assassination of franz ferdinand and that flashpoint triggered something that's been building up for years you know what i mean this whole conflict didn't just spring out of nowhere. Like you said, too, the movie is showing with that exceptional opening first act is showing the, the war machine turning. And just like you said, too, the exhaustion of really when it comes to war, I guess, on war on that scale, the financial drain of it is resources and your biggest resource in a war is bodies to fight the war. And when you're fighting wars like they were doing then with muskets and bayonets and trench warfare and flamethrowers and that kind of mass carnage where they were just literally throwing bodies at bodies, the death toll being so high, you're running out of your number one resources, which is young men who are capable of fighting in the war. It really boils down to who can outlast the other person at that point. Oh, yeah. Yeah. How long can we hold this out? Because ultimately, this isn't a spoiler because it was World War One. but at the end of the movie, it explains that they'd, they'd got locked into this 
particular type of warfare because of the way the war progressed, where basically they were fighting, I think it's called like lateral or horizontal warfare or something like that, Mm. where it boils down to they were basically fighting over 200 feet or yards or something. Yeah. The war ultimately culminated in them fighting in trenches over, yeah, feet, which is kind of completely irrelevant at that point. Yeah. It's crazy. The last act of the movie, the last section of the movie is heart-wrenching because it shows the stupidity of what ultimately they were doing where we're talking hundreds and thousands and ultimately millions of people dying over feet on a stretch of land a muddy desolate piece of land yeah it would just seem so insane to me that after all of this it culminated it culminated in that I think if anything, it's it's definitely a a very well done anti-war film. <laughs> I mean, if you if you're if you're like pro war or pro man versus man scenario after watching this, then you need to get your head checked because there's there was nothing glorious or glamorous about what happened on those on those fields it, and how it just it it's it's so interesting what our, our perspective character's name is Paul, I believe. Was it Paul? Paul, yes. Played by Felix Camera. A great, great performance. Yeah, wonderful. All of the performances. All of them. Yeah, all of them were were really uh, well done. Um, He's our perspective character throughout the uh, entire thing. And it's very interesting to see his his kind of his youth and his joyous idealism when it comes to uh, going to war, going to war for his country, going to war with his friends. And like the youth and all of them. And then by the end, it's it's just like he looks like like 60 year old man, like he's been through just levels of hell that you you really can't comprehend. I mean, just uh, uh, I think a lot of combat that happened back then was hand to hand. I mean, in the end, if, if you ran out of bullets and it came down to it, you were fighting hand to hand in the mud. And that is a different that is a different beast right there. That is that is like a different thing that I think at least and and I have no knowledge of war personally whatsoever. I have never been deployed. I've never I would anything like that. Nothing like that. So I imagine today a lot of things are fought at a distance. Drone warfare, plane, missiles. Uh, we have a lot in our arsenal that I would assume you know, would lessen the close combat aspect of war today. Now, once again, I caveat that by saying I've never been in those situations whatsoever. So don't take my word for it. And as far as film goes, as far as this movie goes, the depiction of that was very much at the forefront where it is uh, ammunition and and like that arsenal was very slim in comparison to now. So a lot of the fighting that you had to do was very much close up and it did not shy away from the the carnage that happened in that environment. I'm going to double back real quick as we do. We went on a side tangent, but yeah, how do I place it in the pantheon of war movies? Because I was thinking about 1917 when we watched this, which has a lot of parallels, obviously, from the British point of view, yeah. as opposed to the German point of view in the same same conflict. Um, there's a, there's quite a bit of overlap between those two movies, too. Visually, there's a lot of overlap, which we'll get into when we talk spoilers. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's tricky for me because I feel like 
I was thinking this as I watched it in terms of, oh, well, how do I rank this? Is this as good as The Thin Red Line or, you know, other, other like Saving Private Ryan or whatever? And not growing up watching a lot of traditional, I know a lot of people are probably going to be like, oh, the originals are classic, you know, the, and like, I haven't seen a lot of early war movies. Yeah. So I haven't seen even up to like Kubrick's war movies pre Full Metal Jacket, because didn't he make a one with Kurt Russell? Paths of Glory, I think it was. Paths of Glory, yeah, which I haven't seen. So classic war movies, it's never really been my bag. War movies have never really been my bag. As I've gotten older now, I've watched a few, but I haven't watched a lot of classics. So it's difficult for me to rate. But in terms of the one that I've seen, a war movie, in my opinion, should be successful if it disgusts you, because you should be disgusted by what you're seeing, because it's abhorrent, in my personal opinion, the expenditure of the waste of human life over bullshit politics. Now, I'm not going to put myself in a position where I say that wars shouldn't be fought. Sometimes people needed to be stopped. Hitler needed to be stopped. You know what I mean? There's wars that I think, whilst still terrible, are just in terms of, at least I've been made to believe they they are just in terms of what they're trying to achieve. It's complicated. The whole thing's complicated. In my opinion, a war movie is good if it disgusts me. Now, does that make me say, oh, that was a good movie? It's tricky because- Yeah, yeah. Did I enjoy this movie? Absolutely not. I didn't enjoy it at all. Did I like the movie? Yes. But that's weird. It's a weird thing to say. It is, yeah. (laughs) I would say it's very good. I'd say it's very effective. However, I will say this. This movie does not exist without the movies that laid the path, the the groundwork for this movie. So in this movie, I directly, there's a lot of tropes in this movie, like a lot of war movie tropes, which are baked in now to modern, modern war movies. So we have the goofy kid who's kind of really sweet, but a little bit simple, who's dreaming of back home. And we have to see him get killed in the most savage and brutal way possible. Saving Private Ryan has it. A bunch of these movies, 1917 has it. There's a lot of crossover between these movies, regardless of what what war they're being fought in. So whether it's like Vietnam or World War II, we have a lot of tropes. We take a group of people, a group of local boys, which we do in all of these movies. We see those local boys and we get to learn about them. And there's, they all fit different types of types. There's always the one kid who thinks it's a great idea to go. There's always the other kid who is, maybe has like a health problem, like has asthma, isn't in the best shape. You know what I'm saying? There's a lot of like archetypal characters in all of these movies. In this movie, is thick with them. So there's a lot of stuff that happens in this movie that I've seen in a million other war movies and a lot of stuff that happens in the movie that I've seen in recent. So I feel like this movie is a, is, is a product of everything recently that's been made. I should imagine if you'd have watched the original All Quiet on the Western Front from 1930 in this movie, they are like polar opposite. They're obviously talking about the same thing, but in terms of what they, our bloodlust as, a, as an audience now and what we can handle, they couldn't have practically made this movie in 1930 anyway because they couldn't have shown the destruction on such a scale pre-CGI or whatever they use now. It would be interesting to compare it to watch a war movie that's made back then and a war movie now in terms of how effective they are at telling the story because now I feel like in Call of Duty, Modern Warfare, World War II, I was thinking about this when we were watching, and I know I'm rambling, I just think it's an interesting question, you know, like how would you rate it? How would you rank it? And I kept thinking about this when we when I watched it last night. We just play video games of this shit now. Yeah, yeah. Battlefield yeah, yeah, One yeah. literally was set in World War One, and it went across all the different conflicts, and you play different soldiers. So you play like a soldier in Africa, you play somebody in France or whatever. We just play murder simulators of this now. It kind of made me feel disgusted a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because it is. It's fucking disgusting. It's disgusting that now we play reenactments of this for entertainment when this is what shaped all of the freedoms that we probably enjoy now and all of the luxuries that were off the backs of boys who were like dying in trenches. 
and it's kind of sickening. And I, I never really thought about it too much. So the movie was very effective in that respect to me because, and I want to talk about this when we talk about it. It's difficult. I'm trying to give, well, you can't really spoil much. If it's a World War One movie. But how do I rank it? Yeah, it's good. It's good. I just don't, I don't know. I've seen other World War movies or war movies that I've enjoyed more than this. This movie was a slog for me. I thought this movie was harrowing. I thought it was brutal. I thought it was uncomfortable. I thought it was ugly, while simultaneously incredibly beautiful, which we'll talk about too. Yeah, I thought at any moment, like everything could go wrong at any moment. No one's safe. It's an incredibly unpleasant experience. Incredibly. More so than Saving Private Ryan. More so than Thid Redline, which does have its moments too. I think of all of them, this one is the the most misery porn of all of those movies. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's completely fair. Yeah. As as I was watching it, because you get a couple different perspectives. You get the perspective of the, of those soldiers on the front lines, and then you get the you get the flip where it is the politicians and then the upper echelons of of the military hashing it out to kind of come to an agreement to end the war and how they how their war experience was was going on in contrast to how the frontline uh, war experience was happening. And, and it is, it's a very kind of light and dark contrast. When when I was watching it, and then obviously I was I was thinking about the video game thing and I was thinking about how gross that is. I was also thinking to myself, well, thank God we've moved past that. But let's talk about the war in the re- Ukraine with the Russia, Russians and the Ukrainians, which is happening right now, which is heading into winter. And I don't know, I've, have you seen any of the footage, like the ground footage of that war? I've seen some. I've seen like when they sh- when they shot the missiles off and like all the stuff that was caught on uh, like phones and like security cameras and stuff like that. It's crazy. And I'm sure I haven't even seen a, a, a quarter of everything that that is happening or is happening right now. Mass rapes, murdering, murdering civilians. And then we're in a situation where Russia is running out of troops essentially, and they, they don't have anybody trained it's just like this war. They're basically sending kids across who don't want to be there, don't want to fight there. Yeah. So here's me this, and I don't know if you had that realization too, but here's me watching it thinking, well, thank God this isn't happening now. And it's literally happening right fucking now in 2022. Terrible. Yeah. I mean, I did, I wasn't thinking about that when I was watching it. Um, but I mean that you bring it up, it's, you want to think, or you want to believe that you've kind of, that we're civilized enough to, to kind of move forward as a human society. But in the end, I mean, we're, I don't know, well, I guess we're built for it. I, I don't know. How far have we come? You know, all those Russian oligarchs sitting there whilst these Russian boys are going across and crying and missing the mothers and freezing cold, getting the asses handed to them. Yeah, the history does repeat itself, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a, there's a scene where they're, where like the the politicians and like the 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 higher ups in the military are are like hashing out this this treaty and one of the French generals he like takes a bite of a croissant and he was like when was this made and and then yeah, the, right. the steward is like I a couple a couple days ago and he was just like oh how disgusting or like here take this and and put it on the table you know just like disgusted and I'm like perspective Matt what do you what do you talk yeah, about I I mean what I mean but that's that's good storytelling that's that's really exactly good. yeah that's good storytelling that's good movie making that's getting your point across with those small little details and for this movie to be effective it should piss you off it mm-hmm. should disgust you it should sadden you it should sicken you because that's what wore it overall then eric what would you say your your initial before we get into spoilers thoughts 
Yeah, I I think I think I I would say that definitely check it out if you have Netflix. There is there's something in there for if you if you're someone who is a student of history, there's something in there for you. If you're a student of um, filmmaking, there's something in there for you. If you're a student of storytelling, there's something in there for you. So it's not just like it's not just like one thing. You know, it does check uh, a couple of different boxes, right? Um, it is you're gonna watch it, and it's something that you're you shouldn't enjoy, um, but it is its presentation is well done and it's it's heartbreaking and it's it's heart-wrenching and it's strange that you are put in the perspective of i guess what would be considered the wrong side you know with with the the german army you know but it does it, i think it's doing that to kind of show you the inhumanity of war and that everybody loses in the end whichever side you're on if it's two if two and a half hours is too much for you like you start watching you realize i can't do this it's okay to walk away from it and come back to it i i would say that this is this is a movie that you can do 45 minutes in a stretch you could you could stretch it out in a couple different viewings you know just to kind of get through it if if you can't handle the uh the entire run of it so you can treat it episodic if you need to but i think that it is a it, it's a very it's a strong film that needs to be seen it's it's very much it's a beautiful movie to look at if that makes sense in the context of the story that it's telling um so i i think it's a recommend it's a recommend for me i i did like i said in the beginning i was going to sit down and watch an hour of it and continue looking at it the next day which would have been today but i i sat down i watched an hour of it i paused it and i was like i can make it a i can make it the rest of the way through tonight so uh i watched the entire thing in one sitting so and i i'm glad i did because i was riveted the entire time it's a huge recommend for me i'm conflicted on the movie i'm conflicted for a few reasons there's a little bit of borrowing going on in this movie which all art does i guess you you know like sure even as a musician i just straight up crib shit from other people so i get that there's a lot of this movie that i've seen however to say what you were saying it's nice to see a movie from the german perspective which is super interesting i enjoyed that element of it i enjoyed learning about the history i think it's a little indulgent in its violence if i'm being okay. honest now obviously the violence is probably even way worse than what we've seen probably just despicable oh you only really fucking imagine really but i find the movie a little salacious in that they i mean they element. really yeah they really didn't get into open chemical warfare that was happening and i mean there's what there, there's there's one scene the uh, after effects of a group of a group of kids who didn't put their mask on in time or they took the mask off too soon and you see the fallout of that so yeah yeah so i'm conflicted with the movie i'm, I'm conflicted with some depictions of violence for the sake of it i think or to be but it's straight it's a fine line it's like you need to upset people and we need to remember how we we can't forget these kind of wars and we can't forget what they were like we should be reminded of them just like we should be reminded of the holocaust and all of that stuff i'm a little dubious about this movie's portrayal of some of those scenes like i don't know if all of it was 100 necessary i think the movie's incredibly shot there's some opening landscape shots at the beginning we see a fox in its cubs in the woods and we see some like skyline shots that are absolutely staggering the production level of this movie is incredible the costuming the design the settings the environments that built the trenches that they built everything's just beautiful it's an incredibly beautifully shot movie mm -hmm. top tier 
performances across the board are all excellent. All of the kids are really, really good, really, really heartbreaking, heart-wrenching. You love all of them. The performances are really, really good. The soundtrack is excellent. Ah, yeah. The score. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Very interesting. Very modern, Mm -hmm. but also very ominous and brooding. It's actually fire. You do some stuff where it's just a drum hit. Yeah. Where did that come from? Is that? And then it'll do it again, and then it'll do it again. And it's like, it's really cleverly done. And then it'll go into like a march on the snare, which is really cool. It's very barren, but very, very effective. Yeah. But the, yeah, then you get that like crazy, like industrial organ or synthesizer that happens. I was like, what is that? That's crazy. It really sets the stage and it's so brooding and big and ominous. And the fact that it's, it's modern sounding to at least to my ears is, is really cool because it's, I don't know, it kind of puts you on edge. It feels very alien when the music comes in based around the setting. So you'd expect more of a traditional like strings and like traditional kind of orchestration, which there isn't. I like the movie a lot. The movie's very, very good. I have a ton of problems with it, which is fine. It's fine to yeah. like a movie and still have problems with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a huge recommend. Real quick before we go into spoilers though, you haven't seen Amsterdam yet, have you? No. No. Amsterdam's very interesting. So Amsterdam takes place during and immediately after World War One, same war. And it's American soldiers. Now, what Amsterdam does is whilst Amsterdam's like a crime thriller slash caper on one end, it's also talking about a lot about World War One. One thing that's really interesting about Amsterdam is it talks about the American soldiers who returned from the war who were mutilated with uh, disfigurements, facial disfigurements, amputations. And it really talks about and portrays their story and their struggle of re- getting back into society, being kind of ignored by society as like freaks and freak shows and lepers when they came back because of their disfigurements, how they had to bond together in a network of soldiers to help each other because the country, America, wasn't helping its own soldiers. So these guys came back and they would have to like help each other uh, by with medical assistance, with drugs for PTSD and for like pain medications. Nobody gave a fuck about them when they came back. They were just like, all right, you're like, you're weird. You, you upset me. I don't want to see you. Your appearance is upsetting me. So it's telling a story that you don't often get told about the war. So it's a whole new perspective without it being all quiet on the Western Front, which is misery porn for two hours. So I'd argue Amsterdam is a far more interesting take on World War One. It's revelatory because you're like, holy shit. Yeah, I never even thought about that. I never thought, I never knew about any of this. They show a, a battalion of black soldiers who go across American soldiers to help fight. And I didn't know that the Americans refused to let black people fighting for America fight in an American uniform. They made them wear the French uniform to fight for America overseas. I didn't know any of that. That's super fascinating. All of these extra stories about the war, you know, the whole industry of war and the whole industry, like how it affects all these other people too. All of those stories I find really, really fascinating and should also be told. All of these different stories about war, I think to me are more interesting because it paints a bigger picture. The movie's excellent. The movie's not doing anything new. Yeah, no, that's fair. I mean, that that's completely fair. I think. Okay, when we come back, we're going to talk spoilers for World War One. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear God, this is a weird episode. Okay, bye. <laughs> <laughs> oh 
Okay, and we're back from our break. <laughs> Even though we didn't have a break, we just kept talking. Like everything we talked about on our break might as well be in the podcast. But we're back. <laughs> we'll just put, put, we'll tack it on the end, I guess. I don't know. That's what I do. I use stuff <laughs> from the middle for extra little bonus parts, you know? <laughs> we'll start a Patreon where you get the extra tidbit. Oh, God. Could you imagine if we had a Patreon? If I had to make an extra episode in a week, it would literally kill me. I don't think I could make two episodes in a week. The amount of time it takes to make one. That's um like the, there would be different tiers of the Patreon. Like it's like this one's normal, like 99 cents a month. And you get like the, the extra, like, like maybe like a 30 minute episode. And then if you go gold, you get like an hour long episode. And if you go platinum tier, like five bucks a month sort of thing, we try and kill Scott. That's what it is. <laughs> and the cost of it is Eric's mortgage. You have to pay Eric's mortgage every month yeah. in order for us to maintain. I'm God. starting it right now. I don't understand how these podcasts do it. Well, I do understand because they don't have fucking real jobs. So they yeah. can just spend all week doing it. It's got to be it because I don't understand how you can make so much content. It's wild. It's, yeah. Yeah. Should I get back on Twitter? Well, now that Elon Musk owns it. Yeah. Why not? You might get. Well, <laughs> you know what that sounds like? It sounds like you've been unblocked from Twitter. You and Trump. <laughs> <laughs> He's given all those pardons, isn't he, to people who've been blocked? I have, so I have no idea. I deleted Twitter so long ago. Eric's account has been unfrozen by <laughs> Elon Musk. <laughs> and I'm like, is now the time to get back on Twitter? Talk about movies? I don't know. Well, you've been on Paula this whole time, haven't you, Sid? How dare you? How dare you? <laughs> Truth.com or whatever it's called. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, God. <laughs> okay, Eric, this is your portion of the show. You you have the reins. <laughs> Spoilers. Uh, so go ahead and watch the movie, come back, and then, you know, we'll spoil World War One for you. So one of my favorite scenes in this entire thing was that beginning uh, montage of the character Heinrich. I think his name was Heinrich Gerber or something like that, because that's what it said on his jacket, was this kid in trench warfare. And they and they follow, you follow him all the way through it up until what you assume is his death because they cut away real fast. But and then it goes... It goes into this amazing shot of of these this pile of bodies and they're pulling these bodies out and stripping them of clothes, of jackets, of boots, of of all this stuff. And then you you basically you see the process happen where they kind of reuse everything. And and you have this great scene of these seamstresses sewing up bullet wounds. All the clothes is, be, is is being washed again and recycled, and the boots, and then you you get that scene where the the person that we're following, Paul, uh, gets his clothes again, and you and you find out it is Heinrich's set and what happens there. Um, super interesting shot. Apart from like the the environmental kind of landscapes of, of the whole thing, uh, were, were there any um, shots in there or or pieces in there that really kind of intrigued you as they were happening? It, the movie does have its classic one shot tracking through the trenches, where you see you're following a guy through the trench, which is very classic war movie. Mm -hmm. So they do that very very well too. There's another really good shot. They're in the trenches, and it's just before the tanks, like those big Panzer tanks oh, or whatever yeah, they are, yeah. start rolling in. And it goes really, really quiet. And then they look up and it's like that dense fog that covers the battlefield. And then we see like this black, ob like obelisk 
uh, moving towards the the camera. I don't know, just in terms of like setting tone, it was such a, like a wide frame too, like the aspect ratio. It was all super effective. I think the last act of the movie takes place in like a burnt out kind of village where we have the little fires going, like the campfires and we see all the soldiers around. Reminded me a lot of 1917, obviously. 1917, yeah, yeah. Now, obviously you're going against deacons, so you're going against the goat. Yeah. <laughs> it can't it can't be done. <laughs> yeah. The guys who shot this are still incredible, but they do use a lot of those motifs of fire and then reflections of fire and reflections of light through through the buildings. The orange hue and the red hue will cast through as the camera mm-hmm. pans around yeah. and moves around. Yeah. So it's all very effectively done. And it's yeah, it's it's a very visually stunning movie. It, yeah, it really is. Yeah, they'll do some there's some interesting things where um a couple of characters like there, there's a mail delivery and one of the characters gets mail and he doesn't know how to read. So he takes it to, to Paul to read for him. But as he's there in the, like the latrines, I guess. So he's walking towards Paul and, and it's like in the kind of like in this little like tree line, forest line. And as he's walking just casually to, to talk to Paul, to have him read this letter, you have two planes in the background. Like there's still fighting going on, you know, there's like, there's still a war going on. And like there, there's, there's warfare and these planes are like dog fighting the entire time. And he's just like casually walking towards his friend. Could you read me this letter? And it's, and it's just like that contrast that happens is happening the entire time throughout the movie. I'm so pleased you mentioned that because I thought of that scene when I watched it last night. I wanted to bring it up. That scene's fucking crazy and it's so well shot. Yeah. And you see him and he's basically walking across the pole and Paul's just taking a shit. Yeah. Yeah. And, then, and he sits next to him. And in the background, you see those planes dogfighting because I guess where they're stationed is only like a few kilometers from the actual front. Yeah. So they're just on downtime until they get called up. The idyllic serenity of that beautiful French field and the, and the beautiful trees and then him just strolling across totally unaffected by the fact that if you looked up, you would see these planes shooting each other down. It's crazy. That's a really good shot. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting. And then so like when that shot ends and they both kind of walk away in the in the 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 camera pans, you just see one plane coming back. So that's a bit. Yeah, it's very interesting. Also, when you get um, a group of like three French uh, farmers, they're girls and they're walking by. And and then the guys are kind of hitting on him and one of them takes off and, and follows them home sort of deal. It's just it's really interesting. Like there was still life kind of going on as as the war just kind of raged on less than a mile away sort of thing. And it's just like the, these people are coming and going and trying to live their lives in this village that was close by and how everything kind of was effective around them and, and how these soldiers were one trying to probably maintain a little bit of humanity or how they're trying to hold on to something that is basically lost to them, but also still having that mindset of we have to go fight, kill at any moment sort of thing. Um, And how they, to celebrate, they, like there's two of them that always kind of go to this farmhouse and steal a steal a a goose or like steal some eggs or something like that and it's something that has been happening throughout the war and um it kind of it ends badly the last time they do it because i think the war's over it kind of ends badly for one of them and you're like oh don't just don't (laughs) i was like the whole time just don't go there anymore it's not going to be good i i just you see what is how the outcome is going to be the entire time you're like oh come on i mean when i say it's in the beginning when it was relentless 
it's relentless this movie till the very end till the very end oh man it's just like it's like you can't escape it you can't escape the um, the like arrogance and the like the hubris and the ego of the 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 generals and the commanders who are who have who see it that they have an obligation to go to war when all they're really doing is sitting in a in a room somewhere you know having food and sending these boys off to war uh to die for 11 minutes just because of their ego it's just like so brutal so basically they signed the treaty with the french much to the chagrin of these german officials they sign a treaty because the french play hardball with them and they're like okay you have to sign this fucking treaty and if you do it so they sign it there was those two trains parked next to each other there was a french train and a german train and then they would constantly go back and forth between their own quarters and meeting in a in like a meeting room really nice juxtap- juxtaposition of seeing like the bureaucracy of war on one hand and then the reality of war on the other so the whole time we're invested in these kids and these characters sign this fucking treaty sign this treaty let's get this war over so these kids can go home the more it drags out and the more they're waiting to sign that treaty more and more kids die and all of this stuff goes on it's almost panic inducing when it gets to that point because you just like fucking sign it yeah and then when they do sign it and they say that infamous on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month that's when the war's going to end and then we flip back to our cast of characters who at this point only a few have survived so we have paul and kat yeah who are basically all that's left Four hours before the actual legitimate end of the war, even though the war should have been over when they signed that, it is. Everybody else is acting like the war's over. The French soldiers are just chilling out in the trenches. A lot of German soldiers are like, we're not fucking doing anything else. That's it. We're done. And then unfortunately, Kat and Paul are in this one unit. So the whole time when I'm watching it, it's nerve wracking. Home stretch, home stretch. Let's get these two kids out of here. Let's get these two guys. Let's get Kat back home to his wife because we find out Kat lost his son tragically. And then the humanization of finding out about his history and how his wife is really funny in that letter, the way she writes that letter, a really nice like humanization of her. And then so all of this is making us love these characters even more, obviously. Yeah, when it gets to the end, my frustration was palpable because I was just like, I don't get out. Like, what are we doing? Yeah, yeah. It's too much. And then unfortunately, Kat decides to make the stupid schoolboy error of going back to that farm to steal another goose to celebrate, gets shot by the farmer's son and dies in the most tragic way. It was at this point, after we see the other character get flamethrowered to death, (laughs) it's just Uh, horrendous. After begging on his knees in front of the French, he's like, please, 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 please. And then they just fucking flamethrower him, then they kill him. It was at this point where I was like, this movie's a little, it's, Obviously, it should be cruel, but I feel like it's making a point of being as cruel as it possibly can to these characters, Mm. in which case it started to leave a sour taste in my mouth. Then when we see Kat go to get a goose and get punished for getting the goose and get killed by a kid, that's even more tragic because we know he's so close to going home because him and Paul, when they're walking across the field to have that conversation and he's like, we should hang out when we get back after the war. And he goes, I'll not see you. I'm just a shoemaker. You're you're an intelligent kid. You should go to university and have a life, you know? And I feel like the movie is just constantly kicking us in the teeth, (laughs) (laughs) which is terrible. Uh, So let me ask you this, Eric. Yeah. I'm curious. What would you have done in that situation? It's impossible to know. Couldn't you have just, you know, the war's over. Couldn't you have just hid in one of those buildings when they were saying, hey, we're going back to the, we're going back to the line one last time because this fuckhead general wants to go and fight till the very last minute for nothing. Yeah. I mean, some of them tried to run away and they got shot for being deserters. So I, I don't know. You have to be like, I don't know. You have to be like super clever with where you would have hid. It seems like everything was so much like out in the open. Um, 
So it, it might have because everything was like these large landscapes, like and everything was fought on in these fields. It wasn't like urban warfare where you could hide in a building somewhere. At least it didn't seem that way. Um, and if you just stayed in the trenches while everybody else ran out into the fields, I assume you would be shot for not running with them. It, it just seemed like a no-win situation, you know? Even even if you laid down to act like a corpse, in the beginning, they were showing like these random shots like they, like they were shooting corpses to make sure that they were dead. So it's an impossible, impossible situation. Man, you get to the you get to the end, you think he's going to get out and then there's that there's that one scene where the like the last the last fight that Paul gets into it's hand to hand and they both end up in that bunker and there's like what is it when when he when someone looks at a clock there's like 15 minutes so it's like we're going to go to war for 15 minutes and what, and it and they both end up in that bunker and they're at a standstill and neither one of them it seems like neither one of them really wants to go on with fighting one of them has a gun one of them doesn't and that they're just both standing there and just out of nowhere there's a guy with a bayonet behind Paul and he just stabs him straight through and you're like well that's it and as soon as that happens someone announces it's 11 o'clock basically the war's over everybody stopped fighting and the guy just leaves the bunker and paul's just like <laughs> at, at that point you're, you're just like there is nothing like the they, there it, it is complete it, it is completely a all of this is just a waste of time over nothing and um it's not it's not it's not a happy ending by any stretch of the imagination um but it's not supposed to be so i don't know i don't know if you noticed this too eric when paul walks back out to the and he, he basically collapses in the trench on the minute the war ended he got murdered then when the other kid who he saved he saved a young kid there he basically paul went full-on like terminator mode at the end he was just straight up murking people and he got like and, I, and it was almost he was fighting angry for the first time mm -hmm. rather than fighting scared rather than fighting to survive he, he just watched cat die he just snapped yeah he snapped yeah Tijan, the other guy died not to mention that Tajan, when he um the Prussian killed guy, himself where yeah. he stabs himself but and i knew that was going to happen the minute i saw him get a fork because he was eyeballing that fork and then he just starts stabbing himself in the neck because he knows he's crippled god that was brutal god that was brutal and what's interesting about that last fight is paul looks like he's just had enough he's just broken at this point and he's fighting angry for the first time so when he's fighting people, he's like a different person at the end. And he saves this young kid. And that's how he ultimately ends up in the bunker and he ends up getting stabbed in the back with a bayonet. Anyway, the young kid is tasked on to go around and take the dog tags off all of the soldiers so they can report the deaths, just like Paul did at the beginning in the first battle in the trenches. Now, this kid walks past. As he walks past, we see the poster on the wall of the girl that one of Paul's buddies hung on the trench, the kid that gets flamethrowered to death. What's fucked up about that is that shows you the stupidity of it. So basically, just before the end of the war, they were on one bunker. Then they successfully, no, unsuccessfully tried to push ahead, got pushed back. Okay. So they got pushed back, back through theirs by the French with the flamethrowers. Then they go back to the village, recuperate. The war gets cancelled. That stupid general sends them back in at the very last minute. And then they all go in and they all die. And by the time they get back to it, they just get back to the trench that they started from. Yeah. <laughs> 
so it's like they they made zero progress whatsoever zero progress it was sickening yeah i mean that's what this movie is and i think that's what this movie should be you know i was thinking about that when you were talking before i and i did say like i'm interested in all of these other stories surrounding the wars which i am but let's not forget that we do need movies like this we need a sledgehammer too yeah we need the the intricate interesting side stories and we need that and that's what this movie is it's a sledgehammer. As much as, say, like uh, Saving Private Ryan, there's a story that runs through it. But with with Private Ryan, it's like, I think there's an aspect of it that glorifies that war or glorifies the actions within that war. Because you're, I mean, you're rooting for these characters. You're rooting for that, for that end scene. And like, even though there's like all this carnage that happens the entire time. It's pumping you up the entire time. You're like, come on, you know, Tom Hanks, come on, Matt Dillon, come on, uh, Barry Pepper in the tower. But it's glorifying those kind of those soldiers as everything's going on. And at no point did I feel at least in that that is like a a total waste of time. You know, it's like it's like there's no people people made it out and and people moved on and and like the whole thing. And this is just like the machine ate them entirely. Saving private. But Ryan still frames itself as an adventure movie. Now it just shows the horrors of war very effectively, but it's still an adventure story. It's a rescue mission. This movie, there is no plot misery from beginning to end. You know, it's just showing you the events that happened to the second unit company in this particular war. And I would say I would put the uh, that scene with the when spoilers for Private Ryan. There's a scene where Giovanni Berbisi gets killed. He gets shot up and then they they try and save his life. You know, they're like putting gauze and like salt to stop the wounds that like that whole scene like is harrowing. I put the scene where Paul and the, I guess a French soldier like have it out and Paul stabs him close to death and then tries to save him at the end, but trying to like shove gravel in his mouth to get him to shut up and then like giving him like dirty water to like to say he's sorry, trying to clean up his wounds. I mean, I put that scene next to the Giovanni Ribisi scene and I dare you to say uh, one was more powerful than the other. And then he goes through his pockets and he pulls out a picture of the guy and his daughter and his wife. And then he, he puts those in his pocket, but he loses them. He loses later them, on. yeah. In his head probably thought, when I go back home, I'll write a letter to this guy's wife or I'll send money to this guy's family. I think that was like something to make you think, oh, he'll make it so he can send this letter or... Something like that. And then as soon as you said, oh, I lost this sort of thing, you're like, oh, no, you're done. Yeah, sort of thing, you know. So because that was the one thing that kind of connected him to the outside world in a way. It's it's a really good movie that people should see, but it's not going to be a lot of fun. I mean, hopefully it gets shown in classrooms and on a history course, maybe. I I don't know. It's it's good for that. Yeah, I assume it's very factually correct and historically correct. I don't think they would in this day and age make a movie sloppily like that. I think it's probably uh, on the money. Because you have to think every everyone involved in like that whole thing, like all the people involved, everyone's dead. Even if you were a hundred, you'd still be older than a hundred if you were born after the First World War. So yeah, there's nobody around, no survivors from the First World. That's kind of interesting to think about. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. You know what's kind of crazy about it too? 
is in Amsterdam. They talk about this right at the end of the First World War, where, where the movie takes place, and then they go back home. They're talking about war, and then one person says, along the lines of, "History has a way of repeating itself." And we think that we've we've overcome great evil now, but it, we haven't. This is just the beginning. Twenty, thirty years later, back World War Two. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's wrap it up. Then Eric, we've been rolling on for two hours now. Overall, final verdict from you. I would say definitely, definitely watch it. It's worth seeing. Just uh, for. For the visuals alone, the cinematography is amazing. Like like the er- early stuff with the with the land with the landscape and the environment and stuff like that is incredible to look at. It, it definitely it has like Scott said, it does have kind of tropey things that you've seen before. But uh, overall, I think it's a, it's a enjoyable. I'll put that in quotes. Enjoyable movie to experience. There's nothing fun about it, but it is something that needs to be seen i think and like i said before you can you could do it in doses you can do it like in an hour at a time or something like that um but overall i i would say see it if you have the opportunity with headphones definitely the the sound design of it and the the music that they use is very interesting it's an interesting way to present it which i wasn't ready for and i think that the use of the headphones and and uh, watching it that way was uh, pretty interesting. Yep, I agree with everything Eric said. Absolutely everything. It's sad that it's a Netflix original, but also good because that most means a lot of people are going to get to see this. I probably wouldn't. Yeah. It was number two on the trending charts on Netflix the other day. Mm-hmm. This movie, if it had just got a theatrical release, nobody would have went to see that. But hopefully, so. because it's on Netflix, we're going to have a bunch of kids watching it and a I bunch so. of people yeah. normally mm-hmm. wouldn't watch it. And it did get a limited theatrical run too. Some theaters are showing it because I do believe they might push this for awards consideration. Okay. Yeah. I say, I think that's fair. I think fair. Yeah. I mean, I think it's got a good shot at getting something. Definitely on a technical achievement. Really, really effective, really harrowing, really disturbing, very upsetting war movie. If you're in the mood for that, great. But also if you're not, maybe just do it because yeah. <laughs> sometimes we should be made to feel uncomfortable. Yeah. And it's actually good for us, you know, as a society. Well, Eric, that wraps it. Yeah. <laughs> happy happy Halloween, guys. Yes. Happy Halloween. Oh, and a quick shout out to Zach, uh, our wonderful co-host who couldn't make it today, unfortunately. Don't worry, Zach's coming back. Shout out to him. Zach made Eric and I handcrafted pumpkins. Pumpkins, yeah. Which was a really nice gift. And he even even gave us like little candles to put inside of mm-hmm. it. Dropped them <laughs> off at our house. Super nice. Zach is truly a Southern gentleman. Yeah. <laughs> Big shout out to him. And another shout out I want to give to Chris. Chris hasn't been on the show for a little while. Chris had some surgery recently and he's recuperating and thankfully it all went well and he's feeling great. But a shout out to Chris if you're listening. I hope you're recovering well, mate. Can't wait to get you back on the show. Eric and I will return, just like well, Connor we'll, McLeod and Ramirez. Say, we'll, re- we'll return for our uh, Highlander 3 kind of uh, insights. So. And if anything, Eric is the Sean Connery of podcasts, and I myself are the Christopher Lambert of podcasts. So we will return once again. I'm the Kurgan. I'm never Sean Connery. Always the Kurgan. I think in attitude, you look a little bit like Sean Connery. But yeah, attitude wise, you're a total fucking Kurgan. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> I'll take it. Okay, thanks, guys. Take care. See ya.